With inflation now at a 40-year high, all eyes are on the Federal Reserve. Will it be able to successfully tame today's hot inflation by raising interest rates? The problem with inflation is that the longer it lasts, the more it spreads, it becomes ingrained. And so people will ask for higher wages. They will, and, and it, it becomes a self-fulfilling self prophecy. And that's why there's the saying, when you have to take a leg, you, you don't start with a toe, you get rid of that leg. And, and so similarly, when you, when you fight inflation, you've got to get out in the front of it. And so that means last summer, they should have raised rates. Or the latest, when they finally realized they're behind the curve, they should have done something. Just talking about it, well, mortgage rates are up a little bit, bonds have been selling off, and, and so they think that's enough. Um, I'm a bit of a skeptic here. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. With inflation now at a 40-year high, all eyes are on the Federal Reserve. Will it be able to tame today's hot inflation with higher interest rates? And whether or not it can, what havoc may those higher interest rates wreak on America's overleveraged economy and overinflated financial asset prices? To explore these critical questions, FedWatcher and fund manager Axel Merck returns to the program. Axel, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, and thanks for that optimistic opening. Yeah, yeah, we're all about optimism these days. Um, well, look, what what is, Axel, your current assessment of uh, current monetary policy and the situation that the Fed finds itself in right now? Well, we're in the roaring 20s. The question is, how long can it last? And uh, I mean, you, you pointed out, right, inflation is high. And the Fed is so aggressive that they are threatening to put interest rates as high as maybe 2% when they're all done. And uh, so I'm not so sure whether you can fight inflation with negative real interest rates, um, but they'll give it a shot. And, uh, and of course, there are some, some seasonal or cyclical or pandemic or endemic related factors that, that may, may reduce some of the the tailwinds, but the, the problem with inflation is that the longer it lasts, the more it spreads, it becomes ingrained. And so people will ask for higher wages. They will, and, and it, it becomes a self-fulfilling self prophecy. And that's why there's the saying, when you have to take the leg, you, you don't start with a toe, you get rid of that leg. And, and so similarly, when you, when you fight inflation, you've got to get out in the front of it. And so that means last summer, they should have raised rates. Or the latest, when they finally realized they're behind the curve, they should have done something. Uh, and, and the short of it is, right, you get new information. That means you come out with new information and do something about it. Um, and uh, just talking about it, well, mortgage rates are up a little bit, bonds have been selling off. And, and so they think that's enough. Um, I'm a bit of a skeptic here. All right. Um, so what, what happened? So let, let's say they follow... You know, the path you just laid out, and they, they raise rates over the course of the next year or two, up to 2% nominal, which, depending on where inflation is at that point in time, you know, may still be a negative rate. Um, if inflation is still a problem, what do they do then? I mean, do, do, do they have to go higher than that? Or do they just let inflation become endemic? Well, let me answer, answer a different question here than, than you're asking. Um, when you look out, you can see in the market what inflation expectations are. And one of the things you can get, you can get very mathematical. You can say what inflation expectations are five years out, 10 years out. 
Now, you and I, and even the folks at the Fed would admit they have no clue what inflation will be 10 years out. Um, we have some fears and whatever it is. But when you look at these market-based expectations, what they're really telling you is how much confidence is there that the Federal Reserve will be able to pull it off and that inflation will be quote unquote contained. And there the market is telling us, yep, the Fed will pull it off. And so you and I, and maybe many of your listeners are skeptical, but at this stage, the market is still confident that the Fed will be able to contain inflation. Now, that's of course where as an investor you can come in and think, well, maybe I, I, I don't think so. And that comes back to like, can they, can they continue to, to hike rates? And that's the attitude the Fed had. Well, if inflation is a little bit higher, they'll continue to hike rates a little longer. What I would watch out for is, is confidence in the Fed eroding. And so the, the first thing is coming up in a, in a few days, the Federal Reserve has generated. Nobody expects anything. But if you look at the folks who, who used to be at the Fed, um, they have become ever more vocal. I've never heard that many folks who are not at the Fed speak out as publicly. And they're saying it's high time to act now. And you put that into context, we have a new set of Fed presidents are voting. It's the most hawkish set of Fed presidents we have. Let's see how many dissents we have. Um, I think we could have up to three dissents. One, uh, Esther George, I think if she doesn't dissent, I don't know what, uh, what they're giving her to, to not dissent. Um, but that's, we have to look at where is the, the disconnect or the, the, the dissonance there. And then presidents, these are the regional Fed presidents, they tend to be sometimes renegade. You want to listen to the guys who are voting in the current year. And then there are the Fed governors. There's one Fed governor who might dissent. Um, now, the argument against that is, of course, hey, wait, in March, everything is going to be fine. Mortgage rates are higher. So Powell might be able to appease them. But what you want to watch out for is, is Powell able to hurt the cats? Or is the dissent going to erupt into, into, into a revolt? So that's the sort of thing you want to watch for. And that's when, that's when things could get ugly in the markets. Okay. Um, so just to make sure I understand there, um, the way the Fed is pretty much operated for the past bunch of years is um, the chair basically decides what he's going to do and everybody pretty much lines up behind him um, and not a ton of dissent, although I don't follow the Fed as close as you do. So correct me if that's an incorrect statement. Um, but you're basically saying you're seeing a lot of the alumni, you know, the, 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 the Fed heads emeritus um, that are out there, um, you know, former Fed um, regional presidents, uh, board members, et cetera, not, not, not Greenspan and Bernanke and Yellen, but, but you know, more the regional guys, um, be more critical of the Fed than I think I heard you say you've, you've ever heard them be collectively. So, Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so if some of that spills into the new you know, directors that are on, on the board there the, that are voting, um, then you're saying it may not be a you know, universal lining up behind the Fed chair. What happens in those cases? So who, well, it, you know, does it, it have to be a, it, how, is, how are the votes determined? Are they majority or, or is the Fed? Yes, they, they're majority. They're, they're majority, of course. And uh, it, it will take a lot. Um, in the US, at least, it's consensus based. In the Bank of England, it does happen that the, that the chief, uh, chief gets overruled, but it doesn't really happen in the US. And, and if there's one dissent, that people will just shrug it over there as a hawk out there, right? But if you have three dissents or if you have a governor dissent, 
that will have ripple effects. That means there is some real, real um, disconnect between what the what the chair wants to do and the rest will do, and that a revolt might come at some point. And so that's that's why I'm saying one has to pay attention to that. Now, in the meantime, of course, yeah, the most likely scenario is that um, that it's going to be smooth sailing and whatnot. Now, of course, you have seen what smooth sailing means in the market, right? Um, rates go up and the funny season seems to be over. Um, and that means that the meme stocks are coming back to earth and a few other things are happening. Um, and the whole point on that note of raising rates is to tighten financial conditions. I mean, that's it, it's a formal word, but, and of course the challenge is when, when, when junk bonds are, are yielding as, as little as treasuries or whatever it is, right? I mean, it's not quite that much, but as that expands, that, that margin, uh, that spread, the question is, will it cause big headwinds? And, and of course, the, the question I think you wanted to ask earlier, well, if the Fed were to raise rates, what is, what's going to happen? And, and we're going to be very late. So, I mean, as we're talking, right, gold had a, had a big rally and uh, it almost feels very late cycle, right? Maybe the Fed is going to do what they have to do. And, uh, and if that happens, well, our next interest rate cut is too far off, right? Because they don't have to go so far to, to hike rates. So it's, it's all, they, they, they painted themselves into a corner um, and uh, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting ride. All right. So, you know, the corner that they're really painted in, right, is um, inflation has gotten so hot that they've, they're being forced to deal with it and forced to bring out the tool they generally, at least this latest round of Fed presidents have hated, which is rising interest rates. Um, uh, but the problem is, is, is if they raise rates too much, uh, they create too much, uh, they may overcorrect and, and A, lead to a market correction, but maybe one that, that turns from a market correction more into a market crash, or they trigger you know, a recession, um, or they trigger even more fundamental instability in the system. Um, so you know, they're, they're trying to chart the middle course here. Um, I'm intimating from your comments and your tone, Axel, whatever they do here, it doesn't sound like it's gonna be terribly surgical. Um, and uh, so we can debate whether they're gonna be successful or not, but um, how, how, how worried are you, concerned are you of a material market correction um, unfolding from, you know, you said the silly season's now over. Um, you know, are, are we entering into a world where these huge distortions and deformations in asset prices, um, you know, may all of a sudden find they've got a pretty large air pocket underneath them? Well, let's start with the good news. Um, the, the good news is that the dispersion is increasing. And so the US is thinking about hiking. Some countries around the world have started to hike. Um, we're getting away from everybody being at zero. And so that's the good news. Now, what you're alluding to is there anything that could possibly go wrong. And uh, yes, a lot can go wrong. Um, will it go wrong? Well, who knows? Um, I just might want to remind people a market crash is not one of the things that Fed Fed's mandates. Um, that said, they have pretty much equated in recent years um, that financial conditions are the same as having asset prices being high. And uh, that's, of course, a problem. They need to walk that away. And is there a smooth way of walking that away? No. Um, on the In the best case scenario, it's kind of where we are right now, right? Um, as P ratios have come down, um, and the market hasn't collapsed. And that's because the earnings have kind of uh, gone up quite significantly. And so if that can continue, they can do their very, this very subtle approach. And some people at the Fed believe in this fine tuning theory. I remember in the early 2000s, I had a chat with Don Cohn. He 
was a vice chair at the Fed um, just before that. And, and uh, he said, I ah, don't worry, the Fed can always fine tune these things. Now, as monetary policy used to say that it lags with a lag, right? And it's impossible to fine tune this stuff, especially when we have so much leverage in the economy. Now, where will this end? I, I, the, the thing is, uh, is there a crash imminent or not? I, you asked this question and I think it's implicit in what, what you're saying. Um, the thing is, we have been able to kick the can down the road an awful long time. And so I don't underestimate the ability of the Fed and the, and the can kicking off. Now, as an investor, I cannot rely on that. And I have to think about, well, what happens if something goes wrong in that process, right? And that's really what, to me, investing is about these days. On the one hand, yeah, the, the party is on, right? And how do you dance? Um, or do you stay on the sidelines while your cash gets evaporated with inflation? And, and so it's uh, trying to make your life as difficult as possible. But at the same time, yeah. Um, and, and by the way, the, the, there has been all this dip buying when the market has been down 5% or so. Um, and uh, will, that, will that abate? Well, right now the economy is expanding. And so historically we don't see the major crashes during expansion, but as we've discussed, right? A lot of things can go wrong if they need to hike rates a little bit more. Um, if the market just thinks they need to hike a little bit more, um, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy quite quickly. Yeah, all right, great. So you're taking this where I did want to go, which is one, just to get a sense for how worried are you? You're an experienced fund manager. Um, I'm intimating from what you're saying, which is you're concerned, but you're not like lying awake at night worrying about some calamitous um, market repricing, or at least short-term market repricing. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the big question that I think you just sort of cracked open there, which is how does somebody, you know, who's, who's got to manage capital navigate and do that in this type of environment, which is very different from, you know, any year of the past 10 that we've just lived through. So how are you doing that? Are you, are you taking more off the table? Are you rebalancing your portfolio with additional hedges or what are you doing right now? Yeah, many, many different topics you mentioned here. The first is your reference being awake at night. Anybody who's awake at night because of their finances is over-invested. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's an all cash, all equity, or all gold portfolio. Um, if you can't sleep at night, you have too much risk in the market. And so, and that's, to me, I, I, as you well know, I can't give specific investment advice, but that's kind of the one advice I like to give is that you've got to be comfortable with your investment. Can you afford the sort of investment that you're undertaking, no matter what it is. And so I'm in a lucky situation that I have a job um, and I have an income and that, and I'm healthy, right? And so I'm like an annuity. And if you are healthy and can work, you can afford to take more risk. Um, and I, I, I spread my eggs, right? I, I own real estate, you know, I'm a, I'm a farmer these days. And as you may also be aware, you, you know it, but um, not very many audience knows, we manage over a billion dollars in gold and gold mining. Um, and those, those investments are mandate driven. Um, and so then we don't have much of a choice. Now, like it, but we invest in exactly what we're supposed to. As far as my own uh, portfolio is concerned, I, of course, invest in the, I, I eat my own pudding, right? I invest in what we do. Um, and I do, I do still have equities. I sold all my equities in, uh, in 2007 uh, because I was, I was uh, spooked about what's happening in the market. Um, but currently I have equities. I am not quote unquote fully invested, but I'm not in the all cash mode. And the reason is that as I indicated earlier, we're in an expanding economy 
And so in as long as we're still expanding, I historically, at least, we have not had the major bear markets. Now, can it happen? Absolutely, it can happen. Um, but the switch, the, the flip side of that is, if that were to happen, I can afford it, right? So I'm not suggesting anybody else should do what I'm doing if they cannot afford it. And so I'm in a position, though, where I have taken chips off the table and I could deploy more. Um, I'm not all in, all out in hunker down mode. Uh, that said, if anybody in Main Street looked at my portfolio and saw the sort of gold mining and gold exposure I have, they probably think I'm in an all out hiding mode. Um, and so, uh, but as far as my own spectrum of investments is concerned, I, I have not taken down the equity portfolios as much as I did in 2007. Okay, great. That, that is sort of the relative um, comparison I was looking for. So, um, you know, you're not, you're not down in the bunker necessarily expecting, you know, the type of systemic and severe market correction that we had in 2008. Of course, nobody knows what the future is going to bring. I'm not going to hold you to any of this, but uh, you're, 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 still, you're still actively. Well, I, as, as, as I mentioned to you, I think we're in the roaring 20s, um, but the roaring 20s didn't end so well. Right. And uh, and I know Mike and John, you'll talk to later. They think we are very much at the end of that. Right. And so it's it's a and, and market timing is extremely difficult. And uh, I don't know what I'm right. I don't know what they are. Right. It's again, it depends on the risk profile that one has. And uh, to, to just take some of the positive spin off. I mean, if uh, there are some you can I'm an open book. Right. You can see in public filings how much I have in gold mining. Um, it's a. It's a, it's a fairly substantial amount compared to most people's portfolios. And, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, I'm very comfortable with that. But because of that, I can afford to still have ex equity exposure as well, traditional equity exposure. Okay. Um, I want to I kind of end this conversation on mining because I think there's a lot to talk about, gold and mining, because I think there's a lot to talk about there, um, even just with the action today, which was notable. Um, but real quickly before we do, just to finish this out, Axel, um, you know, I know that that you're not a professional financial advisor like John and Mike, the you know financial advisors that Wealthion connects people with. Um, but you, one sort of personal wealth building is a passion of yours, and I say this looking at the book Sustainable Wealth on the bookshelf behind you that you wrote, um, and live the principles uh, that you wrote in there. You you definitely you know follow your own logic. A recent addition is is a is a little wind sticker, the the whip inflation now sticker from the nineteen seventies that I recently added to my collection here, yeah. which I think is great. It really does show that uh, that you know history moves in cycles. Um, we always like to sort of think where we are is unique, and and you know nothing like this has ever happened before. But oftentimes the contrary is too true, where you know history faced a lot of the same issues. Um, you know, at previous times, and you know, we're right back in this place where we're. And, and and by the way, when people say it's ridiculous that we are in a 1970s style economy, well, the the parallels keep piling up, right? Uh, it's of course it's different, but then again, some things are very much the same. Exactly. So, because you have this understanding of the arc of history, and because you are out there, you know, deploying capital on a day to day basis for your funds, um, I just want to end here, which is. Um, you know, what other advice do you have for the concerned investor who's watching this video? Um, you know, they're concerned about the things that we talked about, but they have capital. They want to put at least a prudent amount of it um, actively deployed. Um, you know, is there anything that we haven't talked about already that you think that those people should keep in mind, either, either things to look at or things to, to avoid doing? 
Well, in, in some ways I touched on it, right? Uh, being able to sleep at night is the ultimate yardstick. And uh, that relates to both investments and, and health, right? Uh, to, to invest in that. Um, to have a plan is important. Um, a mediocre plan is much better than no plan. And, uh, and to cross-check that, to, to stress test that. Um, there will be new information and uh, you, whatever plan you have, you'll get rattled, right? And critically evaluated um, from time to time. But the worst you can do is just listen to one soundbite and chase one direction, listen to another one and, and run the other direction. Um, that's, I don't think that's going to help anybody. And so having a plan, and the reason you want the plan is, uh, let, let me give you an example. I've, I've made, given that example before. In 2008, right, uh, markets collapsed. And then when we're at the bottom, a lot of people said, you've got to double down. Now, technically, that may have been correct because it was the bottom of the market. But if you think about it, if you have a certain risk tolerance, you allocate that amount to risk assets, to equities, that portion is cut in half. Well, that means your net worth is cut in half potentially. And now you're supposed to double down on that, increase your risk allocation. To me, that's completely irresponsible. And, and so the, the way to address that is to take chips off the table during the good times. And so when I say, hey, I still have equities, yes, I have taken chips off the table, right? I'm less invested. Now, I can take more chips off the table or I can go back up. I happen to be not there at zero, right? Which was kind of extreme in 2007. Um, part of it is I, I do believe the financial system as a whole is, is in better shape than it was in 2007. Um, but, and we know the playbook of policymakers, right? And, and, and ultimately, just about any assets in inflationary environment can do better than, than cash can. Um, also commodities, while right? oil, real estate, all kinds of things can do well. I'm not giving any specific recommendation here, but, um, but people need to be comfortable with that. And then the other thing that I mentioned it, but cannot overemphasize either, is the ability of yourself to, to be an income generating machine, right? Um, you are like a fixed income asset. And if you can make a decent living, you can accept more risk in other things that one does. And then finally, the only other thing to, to mention is that any investment you can control, so to speak, it tends to be good investment, right? So if you if you are have an apartment and manage it yourself, you should get a better return than when you outsource it. And so if you can able roll up your sleeve and be involved in the income generating process, that tends to be a good thing. Um, but yes, of course, there's an investment portfolio. And as we all know, right, um, they, depending on what you do, it's not for the faint of heart and you've got to be able to stomach the risks that come with it. All right. Thanks, Axel. I think those were all extremely useful uh, admonishments there. So thank you for, for doing that. And, and, and two things. One, uh, I just got off the phone right before we, we got on here with somebody who called me up and, and was really sort of lamenting their lack of a plan. And uh, they just had a lot of questions about how do I put one together? Because it's not something that, you know, our education system teaches us how to do. It just sort of throws us out there in the world and kind of figures that we're just going to, you know, figure all this out on the fly as we go along. So um, th there is a real, I think, uh, underserved market out there. And, and I know I'm giving kind of a commercial for John and Mike who are going to come on in a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I um, somehow heard that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 it, but it just underscored what a real world need that was. And then, of course, you just reemphasized that. And, and one, one point you said, which is that a mediocre plan is way better than no plan at all. I totally agree. And, and as you know, with a plan, you know, famously, no plan uh, sur survives first contact with the enemy, right? Um, where, you know, nothing is going to exactly go according to the plan that you put in place, but it's so much easier 
to alter and iterate an existing plan than to navigate without one at all. Because without that, you're just reactive to everything, right? So yeah, very important point. And um, uh, there was another point you were talking about. Let let me give you one anecdote briefly. Um, Just heard of somebody and uh, probably should refer them to to John and Mike. Um, Person, million dollars, um, late 50s, has a, a disabled child to adult child to take care of, a little bit of social security income and uh, wants to generate steady income um, and be reasonably safe. Well, how the hell do you do that with a million bucks, right? And uh, it's, and be safe. Uh, his person was looking into annuities. Well, as uh, those working in the industry know that when you buy annuity, the wholesaler gets about 10% in commission of that annuity. So you can imagine that while that might generate an income, at the end of the day, there's going to be nothing left and that you're probably getting a suboptimal deal. Um, but is there a good answer for a person like that? It's, uh, it's uh, with interest rates at zero. I mean, the choice is all rot. And we're talking about somebody with a million bucks, right? I mean, at least the person has some social security income from, from, a, from a late husband. But, um, but still, it's a, the choices are not easy, right? So it's easy for me that I kind of I'm income generating, I, I can invest in things and whatever. So I, I, it's easy for me to say, right? I, I got choices, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not easy for folks out there. No, it's not. And that's exactly what I was going to bring up where you, you talked about the value of kind of being your own personal annuity. You know, I know from surveys we've recently run that there's a lot of people that watch this channel watching this video right now that are retired. Right. So they, they, they don't have that active income anymore. They may have it passively from certain investments, but I think there's a lot of them that don't. Right. So um, it, it's I, I presume you would say for those you were saying, you know, the active having that active annuity allows you to be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more risk seeking. I would assume your counsel works in reverse, right? Which if you're at that life stage where you don't, you want to really be playing defense much more than- Yeah, yeah um, but, but, but how do you do that, right? And yeah. there, there, is no, there is no easy answer because I mean, as much as we talk about gold mining, for example, as we all know, those are notoriously volatile stuff. Absolutely. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and so that, that works for some people, but only for a certain portion of the, the portfolio, right? As much as I love them, but um, it, it doesn't work for everybody. All right. Um, well, look, let's let's transition right now to talking about gold and the gold mining companies. Our interview with Axel continues over in part two, which will be released tomorrow as soon as we're through editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as the little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to click the like button too while you're at it. And if this discussion about higher interest rates possibly triggering a market correction or worse has got your attention, then be sure to register for Wealthion's approaching online conference on January 22nd. The focus of the conference will be how investors like you can safely navigate the challenges ahead in 2022. And the speakers we have lined up are just tremendous. Jim Grant, Jim Rickards, Lacey Hunt, Luke Groman, Danielle DiMartino Booth, Rick Rule, Brent Johnson, Tavi Costa from Crescott Capital, and that's just to name a few. They'll be joined by experts on real estate, farmland, precious metals, and cryptos. Folks, this conference is less than 48 hours away now, so if you've been thinking about coming to it, you're almost out of time. To learn more and register, just go to wealthion.com slash Jan2022. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our video interview with Axel Merck.